Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Natalie Dignam. Today I'm in the studio with Folklore's Laura Sankini. Laura is the Curator of Craft, Design, and Popular Culture at the Canadian Museum of History. She also received her PhD in Folklore from the department here at Memorial University. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you for having me. So I was hoping we could just talk about your work at the museum and what you do there. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so I am the curator of craft design and popular culture, um, and that means I am responsible for the intellectual management of the collections relating to craft, uh, design, popular culture, um, and folk art in at the Museum of History, as well as research in those areas um, and exhibition development. So when you talk about like managing collections, uh, what does that mean? So in terms of managing the collections intellectually, um, it's really about, um, so I'm responsible for acquisitions. So that's bringing in objects. Um, and that's really finding objects that are of national uh, significance and importance, um, doing research into them to figure out what their provenance is, um, writing up a research dossier, bringing them into the museum, um, and then also conducting um, original research on the collection. Um, right now I'm doing some work with our historical dress collection um, or our hooked rug collection, which is an area of interest to me. Um, we have a pretty extensive uh, hooked rug collection from across Canada. So there's that side of things. Um, the physical um, management of the collections is done by our collections management team. So they're the ones who are really responsible for making sure the objects are taken care of. Um, they work with the conservators who make sure that... Um, you know, the proper treatments are done to keep the, the objects um, stable and safe. Um, so, yeah, so I'm responsible for that whole, like, research acquisition side of things. And they work, we work together a lot to make sure that our collection is um, well taken care of physically, well documented, well researched, um, sort of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you get to do the fun stuff, which is, like, creating the exhibitions so that when people come to the museum, like, they're going to see the what you created. Yeah, so for me, when I was going through grad school, um, you know, when people usually go to a PhD, they, there's an assumption that they're going to become professors and that's what they want to do. I always was interested in museums. I always liked museums. Um, and so at the back of my mind, I always thought I'd really like to be a curator. Um, and t- to me, you know, it's, um, it's really cool to see the research that you've put in and all these years of research, um, up on the walls so that Canadians and international visitors can come through and learn about um, an aspect of Canadian history. And I'm going to channel Dale here, uh, Dale Jarvis, who uh, usually hosts this podcast, if you're familiar with this, because he will always say, oh, you need a folklorist for that, um, for so many different uh, roles. And this is one of those those roles, I think, that that you have found like as a folklorist has been very applicable in your work. Yes. So my PhD supervisor, Dr. Jillian Gould, uh, always told me, um, she always said, every museum needs a folklorist on staff. And um, I've been lucky to be that one folklorist on staff at both national museums that I worked at. And I think uh, that the way we're trained to conduct research and to look at objects and to work with communities um, positions us in a really unique way. Um, and it's... Um, it's nice to see, like, I've been meeting a lot of young folklorists uh, the past couple of days, and it's really nice to see so many of you uh, working in the heritage sector these days. I want to dig into what you said about uh, the, how the way that folklorists are trained really makes us um, 
very very like fitting for the heritage sector or like museums could you talk a little more about that yeah so i think um training in folklore you know there's the very traditional route of being a curator working in a museum people often think of being a curator but there are so many things that so many jobs that can be done at a museum that a folklorist can do really well so in terms of research um you know, doing original ethnographic research is something that starts really early when you're training as a folklorist. So, um, you know, at the, with Munn's department here, students start in their first classes, starting to do interviews, starting to do original work. And so developing those skills um, is really important with museums today because we work very closely with communities. Um, you know, when we're um, working on exhibitions, we work very closely with the communities that we're going to be exhibiting, let's say. Um, and so being able to do that kind of research and develop trusting um, relationships with communities is really important. And it's something that we get a lot of experience going through school, grad school, you know, um, in folklore. I think um, we're also um, trained really well, I think, to, uh, we're flexible. You know, we, um, we can work um, in public programs in a really interesting and creative way because we do conduct some really creative and interesting research um and so you have sort of that avenue that's open to people um as well as interpretation because you know folklorists work um a lot of what we do is in the public so we're used to interacting with a wide variety of audiences um even if you're sort of an academic folklorist you're used to communicating with not just other academics but with the communities you're interacting with um um, you know, so it's you you become pretty flexible in how you can communicate, and I think that comes in really handy when you're in the museum sector because you're not just communicating to other academics. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the the objects; it's so much more about the stories or the people connected to the objects. Or like you're saying, you're working with communities to like acquire these objects. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that's great that you mentioned that because it's true. We um, as folklorists, you know, we we're trained to look at stories. We're trained to look at context. Um, you know, so it's not just the object, which is, of course, something that's really important, but it's also about everything that's around the object. And that's something that we kind of come out of folklore lear- having learned already. So I think that definitely, um, I don't say like it gave me a leg up, but it was definitely something that I was already really comfortable and familiar with uh, going into the museum world. Um, and also that objects have changing contexts and they can change meaning um, through time, but also, um, you know, through the community that it belongs to or through, you know, the differences in context between the maker and the user. So um, we're used to kind of those changing, overlapping contexts and comfortable with them. Um, but, yeah, when it comes to communities, I think, again, like as a folklorist, it's ingrained in us to work with people. And I think that's a really important um, aspect of public sector work. Mm-hmm. One thing I, I'm wondering is, like, when you're putting together an exhibition, let's say with, like, the dresses, do you acquire um, a lot of these things that you're putting together with your exhibitions with, like, folk art and stuff uh, from other archives or other museums? Or are you working sometimes with, like, individuals who might have these objects or uh, different, like, local museums and stuff um, that are they're a little more, like, personally tied to people? Yeah, so it's all of those things. Uh, so we have very large collections, and when possible, we like to use our collections. 
Um, and we often have a lot of really good information about uh, the artist and the community that it comes from. Um, if we're lucky, we might also have had um, previous curators who've done interviews with the artists. So there's usually a lot of really nice media information. Um, we do work with smaller museums or other museums on loans. Uh, so there, there's objects that we don't have um, or, you know, work with private collectors um, or artists. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of a, like I was saying, the sort of diverse people that we work with. It's, it's you know, yeah. It's pretty diverse. So you work in the museum in Ottawa, but you also have previously worked in Halifax. Could you talk a little bit about your time there? Yeah. So I was an oral historian at the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21 for two and a half years. And uh, so that job was really interesting. Um, I spent a lot of time traveling across Canada, uh, conducting oral history interviews with immigrants and refugees documenting their lived experiences of immigration to Canada as well as their life in Canada. And um, I was there when they were redeveloping their new permanent exhibitions, so these two really beautiful new exhibition spaces. Um, And so I was part of that team and uh, worked with the other oral historian on curating all the oral history components in the two exhibitions. Yeah, and I wanted to chat with you about this too because we had been chatting before that that I had gone and visited here, and I just, like, if anyone has the opportunity to go to this uh, museum, um, it's really amazing, and I think it's a, it's very unique, um, and it's so, like, focused on people's stories mm-hmm. and bringing forward the story over even just, like, what is physically in the museum, and yeah, which is really the work of an oral historian, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it was, um, I was definitely drawn to it because my mom had, well, my family had come through Pier 21 when they immigrated to Canada. So there was already that personal connection to the place and the place itself is, is a really important, it figures really prominently in a lot of people's, um, um, life stories. But also, um, you know, it's, it's a museum of stories. And as folklorists, we spend a lot of time with stories and narrative. And so I was, I was drawn to that. And the experience was really, really great to, to meet so many people, especially, uh, you know, these days with sort of the climate, um, around refugees and, and immigrants to sit down and have these like really long interviews and, and, um, long discussions with people about their lived experiences really, um, I think was really important and I think it plays a really important role. And I hope that people go and, and, um, have that personal experience with, um, an immigrant or a refugee story and, um, you know, have that sort of empathetic reaction to, to what yeah. somebody's lived experience is. Yeah. I definitely found that it did that really well, uh, when I went with my family. Um, yeah. yeah I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's a great place. But, uh, so I was, I'm wondering too, did you do any sort of like tie in with museum work in your, in your academic work as a master's or PhD student, or did you work on something totally different? So my master's work, uh, was totally different. I was looking at the Montreal Italian community and looking at how they developed and maintained relationships to their Italian identity. Um, and then for my PhD, I was really interested in uh, material culture and sort of developing that a little bit more. So I landed up uh, writing uh, my thesis on Shetty Camp rug hooking. And halfway through my thesis uh, work, I got this job at the Canadian Museum of History, and that really changed the trajectory of my work because I was in this really unique position to have these, you know, 
many, many, many hooked rugs in the collection and um, access to them. And so it changed my work. And I was able to include a lot of collections-based research into my work. So it was sort of a, became a mixed methods uh, thesis, sort of part ethnographic, part collections-based. Um, and I think they worked well together to sort of, um, you know, give a, a, a nice context to, to rug hooking in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like only a folklorist would be like, yes, I'm going to have so much access to hooked rugs. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yes, it was very exciting the first time I saw the the rug collection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a dork, dorking out moment. Oh my gosh, yeah. I feel like um, often like when I talk to other folklore students, other folklorists, it's like you geek out over <laughs> like yep. some strange things. Yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Definitely. My current obsession is like, like I'm, I'm like on the search for like looms. I'm like, where oh, are yes. they? Because I was talking to someone about looms. So yes, I'm like where we are have, the looms? We have some of those. Oh man, I'm <laughs> coming over to come by. <laughs> See the looms. Um, yeah. So we're in that work. You did uh, some work with like the the rug hooked rugs that you had in the collection. Did you also interview a lot of uh, rug hookers and artists? Yeah. So I. Uh, Spent quite a bit of time in Shetty Camp, um, interviewing rug hookers, folk artists, um, people who had had mothers who hooked rugs, um, um, people who hooked rugs when they were younger and stopped hooking rugs. So it's kind of a wide, a wide net of people that I spoke to. Um, we were lucky at the museum. We had interviews from rug hookers that had been conducted previously. So I was able to like really go into some of that um, with quite some detail, which was really helpful. Um, lots of archival information. So um, we have a great collection of um, archival documents from Marius Barbeau, who is sort of the father of Canadian folklore studies. He worked at the Canadian Museum of History and um, in the early 40s was really interested in hooked rugs. So I got to uh, dive into that um, archival um, collection, which was endlessly fascinating. Uh, you know, um, I had never really um, delved into his work before because mm-hmm. yeah, Iman, our, our sort of our lineage is a bit more American with Herbert Halpert starting the department yeah. versus uh, Marius Barbeau, who um, was at Université Laval. So come from different lineages. So it was really interesting to. Um, look at his work and sort of now I am the steward of a lot of his early collections, which is kind of an interesting thing when you think about the history of folklore studies in Canada. Mm -hmm. Do you have any advice for, uh, you know, students who maybe are are doing their master's or kind of doing this academic work in in transitioning the way that you did into this uh, public kind of work that you're doing now um, or just like the opportunities in the heritage sector that, that you found? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, I think I was... So one thing that we're really lucky at Mun is there are a lot of archives. Mun has six or seven archives. So yeah, there's so many archives lots here. Of archives. <laughs> and so I had done a couple of um, assistantships in the Memorial University of Newfoundland's Folklore Language Archive. And those um, assistantships that I had done, I think, were one of the reasons that I... Um, was hired at Pier 21. I was originally hired on sort of an archival contract mm-hmm. and sort of um, uh, that was kind of my foot in the door for a more permanent job. Um, and so I think what, what I had learned was um, to uh, accept contracts while you're a student 
and some of them are kind of boring, um, but they're really important because uh, we sometimes forget when we're going through grad school that there's a world outside of grad school and um, that we're going to be competing against people who have been working a lot longer in the work field, like the workforce a lot longer than we have. So um, community work, you know, community contracts, working in the archives, are all these really great opportunities to develop skills, to develop experiences that come in really handy if you're interested in working in a museum setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely like the development of those kind of yeah. even... Even those like technical skills or like archival yep. skills. Digitizing is mm-hmm. so important, especially now that museums and archives are putting more and more um, effort into digitizing collections. So coming in with the, that skill that's already been developed is, you know, uh, really important. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite exhibit that you've worked on? Um, hmm. I think um, I was really proud of the oral history gallery that we worked on at Pier 21. And myself and my colleagues spent a lot of time curating it. And it was it, when it opened, uh, we had invited some of the people whose stories were featured in the gallery to come for the opening day. And I think that's um, you know a space that I'm really, really proud of because it really highlights people's stories. And it really um, places, puts a spotlight on... Um, individual experiences um, stories that you wouldn't necessarily find in an archive or hear about um, in any sort of official capacity that we were able to put this national uh, light on I think I was I'm pretty proud of that yeah what was the fieldwork experience like for that project intense Um, so yeah it was really intense um, but fascinating it was the first time I had um, worked with a, a videographer so we filmed the interviews which was a different thing than I had done in the past with field work. You know, you're trained a lot with, with a digital recorder and it's just kind of you and your notebook and your recorder. Um, you know, sometimes interviewing people in their kitchen, their living room, like wherever they'll talk to you. So this was much more formalized, um, you know, filmed in a black backdrop, very professionally filmed and professionally uh, lighted. So it was a, it was sort of a, a new experience, which I'm happy uh, to have developed because now I do a lot of my Interviews. I film a lot of my interviews now because I've um, come to really like capturing people's faces as they're telling you a story. Because um, you capture all of that body language that when you're in the moment, you can read and, and um, feed off of. But when you're coming back to it, if you want to um, write really great field notes or include that in your research, you don't have a record of it anymore if you've recorded the interview audio. So I, uh, I've sort of moved into doing that a lot these days. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point because yeah, the way that I've been trained to has been so audio focused. Um and often my I find that my greatest weakness is that I even forget to take photographs, but it's like you have to record that visual component too. Yeah. And it's expected in like you were saying the importance of uh like digital records now of mm-hmm. video and yeah. photography like having everything. Yeah, and especially um you know, visual video, it's becoming much more like where, where social media is going to the sort of very heavy video based uh, content that um, being able to have that if you're going to share uh, clips, if you want to put it in an exhibition, it adds that visual interest um, that if a visitor is walking through your exhibition and you want to get them to stop for more than 10 seconds, um, having some kind of constantly moving video grabs attention um, a little bit more than something that's static. So when you were doing these interviews, uh, would you were you like traveling all over the country for that? Yes. 
Yeah. So I went to several places. I probably can't remember all of them, but yeah, I um, I did a lot of French language interviews. Okay. So that's kind of was my focus going into French speaking communities. How did you find people to interview and like, how did you kind of like build a relationship before you sat down with them and, and had like the black backdrop yeah. and the video and everything? Because I even I find, um, you know, bringing out like a recorder can sometimes be mm-hmm. very intimidating for people. Yeah, I think um, moving to video, at first I found it a challenge because a lot of the way we're trained to do interviews by giving like verbal feedback, you know, mm-hmm, mm, all that kind of those sounds that we automatically make when you're trying to encourage someone to talk more. Um, when you're filming something where you think you're going to put it in an exhibition, you can't, um, you don't want to hear all of those sounds. It looks a little strange to have somebody talking and then you hear like, mm, mm-hmm, you know, so you get you have to become quiet as an interviewer but then how do you um like how do you encourage somebody to keep talking or show interest so you have to kind of uh, do that with your face and your body in a different way and sort of show that in a in a in a new and different way and sort of developing that side of things i thought was really was really interesting and and it was a good challenge Um, and also being able to um develop intimacy with someone quickly because we didn't necessarily have the time to do follow-up interviews or to spend a lot of time um you know that's kind of the nature of the fast you know this fast-paced world when you're sort of no longer working on your own uh project um so yeah learning to um yeah to to create sort of trust and intimacy in a, in a, a quicker way than you normally would yeah and that's a very difficult skill. Yes. Yeah. And a skill that folklorists have. It's a skill that we're, you know, because we get all this training in the field, um, we develop it. I think we're generally pretty um, good at sitting down with people and people feeling very comfortable with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, what are you working on now that you're really excited about? Oh, my goodness. Uh, well, I am uh, working on um, an oral history project. Uh, right now, again, I, oral history is something I'm very, um, very interested in. So there's an oral history project on the go. Uh, as well, I'm working on some foodways projects looking at, um, changing culinary landscape of Canada. So then I have been working with some, um, organic farmers sort of, um, and uh, doing some oral history with them about, um, the sort of the movement of young, educated urban uh, professionals becoming small scale organic farmers sort of um, their their life stories interesting yeah so are you doing like a lot of filming for that as well yeah a lot of filming a lot of going to some small farms um not right now obviously because the weather isn't great but in the summer it's uh yeah so that just started i've been working on that right now and um, i'm pretty excited about that yeah awesome well thank you so much for coming on thanks um, for having me You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.